Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. We have a little plot twist this week. Emily Jane Fox is not with us this week. And in her stead, we have Gabe Sherman, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Joe. I'm glad to have you here. I just want to, you know, sing your praises off the bat that you are really, uh, you know, the essential uh, reporter uh, at Vanity Fair's The Hive because you have been on the White House beat really since Trump entered office and have followed it more closely and are more well-sourced than many reporters in America, frankly. And you're really wired into what's going on. And that's why I wanted to have you this week. So, you know, um, I both uh, admire and feel sorry for you. (laughs) (laughs) Having had to, uh, you know, be strapped in to uh, this kind of uh, toxic sludge of a presidency. Um, but here we are, uh, two weeks, less than two weeks, until the election. And it feels like we've been living this presidency and the news of this presidency really for maybe 10 years. Um, well, I was just going to say, Joe, you know, we, uh, you and I go way back, you know, our first job working together was uh, in the early 2000s at the New York Observer under legendary editor Peter Kaplan. And in a way, I feel that the Trump presidency is, you know, the Observer story writ large. I mean, it's really the, the uh, apex of everything Peter Kaplan had, you know, taught his young reporters to think about news as this clash of swooping egos and and kind of like a Victorian novel that's unspools every week. And so, um, you know, this this story, I feel like you and I were both, you know, ready to cover from day one. Well, absolutely. And it's a New York City character who has gone rogue in the in the wildest way. I mean, I was watching the Trump rally the other night in North Carolina And he just randomly started, you know, riffing about this conversation he had with Richard Lefrak, who is a fellow New York City real estate uh, mogul. And I'm thinking to myself that these, you know, Trump's MAGA supporters in rural North Carolina have no clue or any connection at all to New York City commercial real estate. And yet, you know, Trump has forged this this kind of umbilical connection with these people, even though his world, I mean, you couldn't imagine uh, a diametrically opposed world. It's it's so true. And just to fill listeners in on on just how deep uh, this goes, um, the New York Observer, which was a weekly broadsheet printed on pink paper, something like the Financial Times, was just at one time, kind of at the turn of the of this century, a kind of um, a really uh, important and great. Uh, paper that covered uh, the power players of New York City, and everybody paid attention to it. And now, oh, by the by, Jared Kushner owns that paper. Um, So after uh, Gabe and I worked there, it was acquired by Jared Kushner and then promptly uh, died. Uh, It was kind of a microcosm of what would happen to the country (laughs) running the the paper into the ground. Absolutely. Um, And so after all of that, here we are. Um, tell me what is the mood inside the Trump campaign going towards November 3rd right now? What, what's the, you know, conversation inside? I mean, I've seen a little bit of it in the press that, you know, they're starting to hedge a little bit about whether they're going to, uh, you know, their confidence is, seems a little dented. Yeah, that's, that's true. You know, I was speaking with a prominent Republican who you know, speaks regularly to Trump and he was recounting a conversation he had with Trump in the last few days in which Trump was still proclaiming 
that the polls were wrong and he was going to win. But it was the the sort of tone and the doubt creeping into Trump's voice that you know he was almost trying to will uh, the political landscape to to change. And yet, you know, every we just see more and more polls every morning that show that this race is fundamentally slipping away from him. And so, you know, you have this kind of dichotomy between the kind of magical thinking at the top and you know Trump channeling his family. Uh, Pastor Norman Vincent Peale, the positive power of positive thinking. And then you have kind of the, the realists around him, Bill Stepien and other campaign um, advisors who are, you know, just seeing the seeing the reality. Uh, and so, you know, that all adds up to a pretty toxic brew. And I think the morale from the people I speak to is, is pretty grim. Um, yeah. And uh, and so that's the kind of that's the 30,000 foot view. Right, a collision course between uh, fantasy, the fantasist in chief, and the reality on the ground. Um, well, it's funny what you say about him trying to kind of will uh, this to be. You know, he's it's wild and on display. I mean, he's like commanding, uh, you know, the attorney general to jail his opponents. He's saying, "Why don't you investigate Hunter Biden and the Biden family?" You know, he's it's like he's throwing everything that he's got at it. And it's all kind of like old material from. Well, like, can I tell you, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about this uh, offline, but can I, you know, please in this forum talk about my whole theory of the race, please, which is and it's it's something that, you know, you and I again have talked about uh, how Matt Drudge has evolved from kind of a pro pro Trump platform into a fierce, savage critic of of everything Trump. And I think the reality is that the virus made Trumpism, you know, essentially um, powerless. And, and I say that because it wasn't until COVID that Trump couldn't affect change and kind of sh- and shape the political landscape to his benefit. And, you know, the virus is just a force that is out of his control. And Matt Drudge realized that the virus was a much bigger star as a sort of as a as a news um, uh, someone who has kind of a laser focus on what uh, what constitutes a news story. You know, Drudge shifted his coverage to the virus and it, it diminished Trump in a way. I mean, Trump suddenly seemed you know, incredibly small uh, when you look at the global devastation that the virus wrought and uh, and his inability to shape reality. I mean, I think for me, the, the revelation was that whatever Trump said was for the first time not matching up to the lived reality of most people in this country, including his supporters. And so you have the diehard MAGA lunatics who kind of storm state capitals and demand um, uh, that they don't want to wear masks, but you know, for most people, and including older voters who who were constituted most of Trump's base, they they don't want to get COVID, and I think that you know, obviously, it's too early to write the the obituary of this race and the, and the autopsy of this race, but I see the virus as the kind of signal event that it looks like made Trump's reelection impossible. Right. And he's done everything he can to shift the attention, right? Denying it is a thing that needs to be worried about, focusing on the BLM protests over the summer, which now seem like eons ago. I mean, the the from week to week, uh, you know, there are a lot of chaotic events um, that, you know, any one of them you think, oh, this could shift things. Maybe this will shift the attention from this way or that way. But what's, fa- you know, Stuart Stevens was on this program um, a few weeks ago, and he said the remarkable thing about this election is how stable the polls have been. You've got all this chaos whipsawing everybody from week to week, and yet the polls have remained relatively the same, right? Mm-hmm. And, like you know, we've talked about the cake being baked, and we don't want to say that yet because there can be late-breaking shifts. And, but... I like uh, we're recording this before uh, tonight's debate, the last debate with Joe Biden. We're recording this before uh, the weekend when everybody will be watching um, 
Borat subsequent movie film. The the uh, with the and Rudy Giuliani's star turn, his star turn, and yet I'm doubtful that any of these things will make a huge dent unless Biden just like you know falls on the floor. You know, I mean, all he has to do is just not uh, destroy himself. Well, right? and to my point about the kind of uh, contours of this race being you know permanently etched by the virus, you know, Biden from my vantage point, having covered Trump, has kind of been running the anti-campaign. I mean, his entire strategy, and at first, you know, he was savaged by, you know, critics and journalists as, you know, oh, Biden is in his basement. And right. yet that appears to have turned out to be a strategic um, g- stroke of genius because, you know, yeah. by just hanging back and letting Trump uh, self-destruct, Biden, you know, did allow Trump to define himself. And that has allowed other people to kind of project whatever their own hopes and, and, and dreams are onto Biden without having a kind of a, a very firmly um, uh, defined political identity this cycle. Well, that's, and you know, you I read complaints all the time from people in the center right and the far right uh, you know, t- the, there's a piece in the um, in the week uh, column in the week this week that's uh, you know Teflon Joe, like the the press won't lay a hand on him, they're not hard enough on him, uh, and a lot of the subtext of this is like let's uh, why aren't they covering the Hunter Biden attack story? Um, you know, to some degree though, what they are up against is the fact that we already know Joe Biden, right? I mean, we've known Joe Biden as Trump will tell you for 47 years. It's not like there's a big mystery here. It's his lack of mystery that I think has been one of his big strengths, right? Totally. He could rope a dope and hang down in the basement and let Trump punch himself in the face every day because nobody was like real excited to find out the deep dark on Joe Biden, right? We already know. Well, and also the irony is that, you know, Trump's nickname, which was so effective for Hillary in 2016 you know, crooked Hillary was kind of a, uh, a perfect distillation of all of the anti-Clinton yeah. sentiment. You know, Sleepy Joe turned out to be a compliment. I mean, America is, you know, ap- appears to be yearning for a return to normalcy where you're not waking up to, you know, rage tweets every morning. And yeah, so yeah. Trump inadvertently has been, you know, boosting Biden this entire time. Well, exactly. Well, this goes to my theory of the race, which uh, you know, relates to your theory of the race, which, uh, you know, I don't think this is Trump versus Biden. It's not even Trump versus the media and and maybe not even Trump versus the virus, although it is that. I think it's Trump versus national exhaustion, right? And Obama brought this up this week when he kind of came out with his like gloves off, you know, full throttle attack on Trump, which was kind of a, a marvel, uh, to watch, but he he made this point, and people have been making this point. I think that Trump is up against the exhaustion that he has caused, right? And on some level, uh, you know, Biden and the sleepiness that he is promising or uh, being advertised as uh, is exactly what people want, you know. Totally, and I and people around Trump talk to me about the difference between the 2020 campaign and the 2016 campaign. And if you look at, you know, Trump's performance in the closing weeks of the 2016 campaign, it was actually, you know, for Trump, by Trump standards, you know, pretty focused and a professional operation. You know, he, you know, lasered in on a series of attacks against Hillary, on trade, um, on immigration, um, on her ties to Wall Street. And, you know, even though Trump has governed as a plutocrat and handed, you know, massive tax breaks to you know, the richest 1%, at least as a candidate, he kind of clearly defined himself as a populist. And in 2020, there is no message. I mean, he's just thrashing and flailing around. And to your point, I think people are just exhausted by it. And if you look at Trump as a a show business creation, I mean, he's committed the worst sin you can as an entertainer. I mean, he's become boring. Totally. And I was just... um... The other day, just out of curiosity, I went back and looked at the ratings for The Apprentice over the course of the time that Trump was the host of it. And it started off, obviously, hugely popular, had 20 million 
uh, viewers on average uh, per show and kind of over the course of like three or four years, you know, went down over 60%. It came, went down to 7 million. And if you live by the rating sword, you're going to die by the rating sword. And here he is. Totally. Uh, he's, out, he's out of episodes, right? He's just well, out of and, ideas. And the New York Ben Smith, the New York Times' media columnist, had a column just the other day making that exact point, you know, looking back actually at Mark Burnett's um, right. track record, you know, Burnett being the TV impresario who created Trump and created The Apprentice, you know, his entire genre of reality programming has been in, you know, decline for years. You know, all of his shows, the last time they were, you know, mega hits was probably around 2010. And so, um, you know, this entire genre of shock value, you know, WWE style, you know, feuds and conflicts this operatic kind of phony show that Trump has been putting on is, you know, people are, yes, there's a market. I mean, I guess what, to what your point is, you know, in 2016, it was so novel. I mean, what Trump was doing in politics was essentially inventing reality television as politics. And that's why it was so shocking and new, but now, you know, we've lived that story and, and we know it. And now what they're trying to do with the, the Trump campaign is make the sons the new characters in the story, right? The sons, uh, Hunter, right? He's the supposedly Joe Biden's, you know, wayward, uh, you know, corrupt son. And we're, we're led to believe that Don Jr., who's out there tweeting today and this week about Hunter is the, you know, I worked my way to the top, he said. My dad had me working up, you know, in the company. Oh, come on. I mean, it's yeah. like, that's not, that's not even true of Donald Trump, certainly not true of Junior. And it would be, I'd be hard pressed. I mean, you can go and dig this up yourselves, ladies and gentlemen, but look up uh, the business, uh, you know, of Don Jr. and Ivanka and how they have traded off the Trump brand while Trump himself has traded off the Trump brand while in government and, you know, enriched himself. They've all enriched themselves using the government bringing people to Mar-a-Lago, using that as their, like, you know, the Southern White House or whatever. I mean, it's so uh, outrageous of a claim. But, you know, this is the sort of Trump ways, right? Like the, the Well, their superpower is having no shame, right? I mean, if you, exactly. if you yeah. don't have a conscience and you don't have shame, I mean, it allows you to do things that 95 or 98% of the world just won't do. Um, but, right. I, you know, the, the point about attacking the sun and kind of elevating these you know, supporting characters to, to leading roles. I mean, I, you know, it just is not going to work because, you know, most people are not political junkies. You know, they, they tune in late in the race and it's, it's a logical leap too far to, to expect people to wait, say, wait, I shouldn't vote for Joe Biden because his, you know, uh, degenerate son may have done a deal that looked bad. It's just, it starts to get so murky and you're in the conspiracy webs that people Mm -hmm. just, they just tune out. Yeah, it's a arcane, kind of difficult to understand subplot that you can't really bother to, you know, even investigate. I mean, uh, reporters can and have at it. The journal, supposedly Wall Street Journal is sort of like looking into this, but, but most people have concluded that, not, you know, beyond it just being boring that there's no there there. I mean, I, I just was looking at the, uh, did you see the note from the NPR public editor? No, I missed uh, that. What about was, what this story. That? Here's the, here's their statement. The, the um, managing editor of the news uh, at NPR. We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. And we don't want to waste the listeners and readers time on stories that are just pure distractions. I mean, that's a pretty uh, bold response, but also a legitimate one. Well, and it, it shows me that the media actually has at least internalized some of the lessons and mistakes of 2016, where, you know, they breathlessly covered, you know, the Clinton Foundation and, and John Podesta's emails as if they were, you know, you know, mm-hmm. equal yeah. scandals to to Trump. And I think now they're not taking the bait. Um, we'll see what's in this journal story. This is Inside the Hive. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. 
I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Talk to me for a minute about the other side players who we thought, you know, this summer, I thought Attorney General William Barr was going to be a major player in the lead up to this election. I thought he well, was going Well, it's, it's, you know, oh, oh, 10 or 12 days away. Let's let's not <laughs> say it's not going to happen yet. Well, it's and still- that's that's true. But, yet, you know, Trump's out there now saying he's he wants to fire them. He yeah. wants to fire them. I mean, and so- I don't see, let's take ourselves into the head of William Barr for a minute. You know, maybe this is just shadow play on the surface for the media, but like if the president's out there threatening to fire you, demanding that you jail his opponents and so forth, and you now are feeling like maybe that's a bad idea. And oh, by the by, looking at the polls and seeing that your boss may not make it over the finish line here, um, maybe you're not motivated to... uh, you know, expend what credibility you may have left on this. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, I don't know what you're- Well, no, and I think that, right. You know, I think, you know, um, people who who know Bill Barr, you know, talk about how, you know, he's, yes, he's been, you know, slavishly um, loyal and, and crossed many lines on behalf of Donald Trump, but it fits into this kind of Dick Cheney-like view of executive- Power and Barr's bigger project beyond Trump was to assert the primacy of the presidency within our system of government, and it's never been about his own, you know, sort of personal like or feelings about Trump. Um, right. And so, you know, as, as Trump's going down, you know, I I question to your, you know, like you said, whether Barr would, you know, indict. Um, you know, one of the, uh, you know, Robert Mueller or any of Trump's enemies, because, you know, this is not about saving Trump. I think Barr has, in, in a lot of ways, you know, gotten what he's wanted, which was to, you know, push back Congress and, you know, neuter the ability to reign in the presidency. Right. Well, and I have to say, I, I look at this Amy Coney Barrett nomination that's going to happen by the time you're listening to this. It may have already happened. I see that as like in all these Catholic culture warriors on the right that are completely, you know, going to celebrate her nomination and her kind of a re- rebalancing of the courts. This is kind of all they were ever after to begin with in yeah. a lot of ways. And so what do they need Trump for anymore? I mean, he if he was the kind of imperfect, horrible, blunt tool, blunt instrument for their hopes and dreams – with the courts, they are now achieved. And you kind of wonder whether or not uh, a lot of people, Mitch McConnell included, might at the witching hour kind of back away from this one and not decide to help him, for instance, suppress the vote uh, or change the rules at the last minute in order to, you know, help him squeeze by because they got what they wanted. Yeah. I mean, that said, they, you know, they always want more. So, you know, another <laughs> four years of having uh, uh, control of the courts would help them. But, you know, on the flip side of that, I think what Biden and the Democrats have done is been pretty savvy about this whole nomination. And they, they haven't gotten tangled up in the woke wars. And they've, you know, to the extent that they've criticized Barrett and they've gone after a process that they're jamming this through, and they've gone after what this will mean for the Affordable Care Act and healthcare um, and issues like that. They haven't gotten mired in the culture wars um, and which is, you know, sort of Hillary's mistake in 2016 is she kind of ran as this identitarian and, you know, it's, you know, the the democratic base loves that, but, you know, the voters you need to win in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan. I mean, that's just not their world. Yeah. I, um, so another thing I want to bring up with you, Gabe, that I think is a story that it's probably like third or fourth, in the kind of uh, news lineup right now, but, and I don't know what Joe Biden will say about it at the debate tonight. I hope when people are listening to this that they know. But, you know, Gabe, you're a father. 
I'm a father. We have children. And I look at this story that came out in the Times this week, this family separation revelation that 545 kids whose parents the government can't find, supposedly, right? That, you know, reminds us once again of just the depraved and kind of like barbaric policy that that Trump put in place with Jeff Sessions and Ron Rosenstein. Well, and the Times had a story a couple of weeks ago where they, um, you know, quoted Sessions saying to the uh, Justice Department Inspector General that, you know, the, se- the cruelty was the point. I mean, the child separation policy was designed to, you know, prevent people from immigrating by making it so barbaric. And that just, again, you know, that's, it's, it, it, when I just think about what we've lived through the last four years, you know, just the, the stakes couldn't be higher. And, um, and I think a lot of people, you know, I, I don't, you don't see Trump, you know, defending the child separation policy. I mean, they're almost just trying to pretend it didn't exist. Well, and I think the Biden campaign needs to remind people. I'm, Stephen Colbert was on uh, the other night saying, you know, he got really passionate about the story. And I think there's a way if you understand what it is and reframe what happens so that people remember the, in a visceral way what it is this is about, you know, the number we're talking about is eight school buses full of kids who aren't going home. It's right? crazy. I know. I mean, you, if I imagine my own children uh, coming home and being told by some strange, you know, police characters, you know, border patrol agents or government officials, yeah, we don't know where your parents are and you're just going to have to go live in this jail for a while. I mean, it's so atrocious I mean, it, it matches. It's as horrible as, you know, the Japanese internment. It's as horrible as anything in our history. It's going to be a very shameful thing for this nation. Totally. To and back I think on. Stephen Miller has already, um, you know, uh, etched his reputation in sort of a rogues gallery of Roy Cohn and Joe McCarthy and these these kind of abominable figures of American history who will be looked back upon as, you know, being, you know, this chapter of our of our life that, you know, we're, you know, embarrassed and shamed by. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this whole nation has been just um, slimed by all of these events. And there are various, you know, levels of of uh, responsibility that people have. You know, you and I talked at the outset about our coverage in the New York Observer of, of characters like Trump and when they were just, you know, confined to the island of Manhattan. Um, you know, one of the best pieces of journalism that was done in the last four years was by Frank Rich in the New York Magazine. And it was about, you know, the invention of Trump in the 80s under Roy Cohn, but also how he was accepted. And totally. The and- New York, the New York society, you know, almost like, one of the things that is prized in New York is infamy. And so Trump was kind of this, you know, screwball character that, you know, us as New Yorkers in many ways enabled as much as, you know, the MAGA crowd. That's right. He, he was seen as, almost as like a benign kind of, you know, comedic side story that you'd find in the page six of the New York Post, right? And But I it reminded me once again that there are even people like Jeff Zucker running CNN right now. I mean, he's as you know, responsible or had as, as big a hand in the invention of Trump as anybody, right? Totally. And I've uh, talked to, I've talked to, um, to Jeff about that. And, you know, he's, you know, he's adamant about, you know, he's been, you know, criticized his entire career as, you know, chasing ratings. And so Jeff is, you know, doubled down on, on sort of feeling like he's not um, a, a responsible for, you know, charting this course. Right. Well, think about that for a second. That that ratings and people's raw attention um, became in the last four years the only um, defining morality or lack of morality, lack of ethics. I mean, it's it really is sort of like the end game of our of our media entertainment industrial complex is that there is no kind of. human interest other than you're looking at it, 
right? With your jaw hanging down or you're laughing, right? I mean, it's, it's a horror scape, frankly. And it's like, well, and it's like, it's, it's the future that was predicted in movies like network or a face in the crowd. Right. You know, that the idea that, you know, the, the hunger for attention would become a means to its own end. And, you know, Trump is, is that, and I mean, hopefully this election will be a corrective for that, but I, you know, I feel like he's unleashed some forces that are hard to um, are hard to control now that they are out in the country. This is Inside the Hive. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of sh**. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And love was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. The big question, should Joe Biden win, is how is he going to repair any of this, right? Can he? Does he have the... The wherewithal, will he be able, the political skill, um, the right allies, you know, it's just going to be, I mean, one of the big questions I'll be having, and I, and I know he's spoken to this a little bit, but is, uh, are we going to address um, what the Trump administration did? Obama made the strategic decision not to prosecute the war crimes of George W. Bush when he won in 2008. And, you know, a lot of Democrats, right. you know, feel that that was a, a massive um, miscalculation. And I, you know, will Biden have, you know, I, could, I think temperamentally, I think Biden is an institutionalist and, you know, he will not want to be, you know, a bomb thrower and, you know, you know, let the Justice Department indict Trump. But you know, I feel like maybe that's what the country needs is some sort of, you know, reckoning with what has happened that we can't move on until there is some sort of justice. I agree. I'm sure there'll be some like commissions and investigations and some giant reports will be issued. Um, but if they're not weaponized with law, right, then they become kind of, uh, you know, just big mea culpas, Right. And well, yeah. I mean, how many how Americans have read the tor- How many Americans have read the torture report? You know that Diane Feinstein did. Um, you know, it's like these right. these kind of earnest commissions produce you know things that get promptly you know put on bookshelves and never looked at again. Essentially, it seems like Biden is going to create various kinds of expert commissions and and try to have to rebuild the guardrails on the government so that. Guys like Trump can't act like that anymore again, right? I mean, now we all know what the Hatch Act is. We know what the Emoluments Clause is, but they were both totally. dismissed, and you know, they need to be, you know, re-looked at and given greater strength, right? And so that's going to just the first, you know, I can see that taking up the first two years of Biden's presidency is just trying to kind of repair uh, the actual laws and rules that. Trump broke. You know, I would be um, I would be interested. This is a, a, a live pitch for for your um, podcast, but to, you know, talk to, you know, the historian who has written a sort of the definitive uh, period about what what the Ford administration did and what Jimmy Carter did after Watergate, you know, because, you know, if you look at 
right. you know, post Nixon's resignation, a lot of laws were passed to limit domestic surveillance. The whole FISA court was created. Campaign finance law was essentially written. You know, there was some a lot of structural changes that came out of that corruption. And I just I'd be curious to know what those conversations were like in the 70s as America tried to you know, repair itself after Watergate. Well, that's a great, uh, you know, segue to talking about the book I'm currently reading, the Rick Perlstein book, Reaganland, which gets totally into this. You know, it's all about the post-Watergate world, the election between Ford and Carter. And, you know, when Carter came into office, and this is a, you know, I hope the Biden people will read closely the history of the Carter administration. Because when Carter came in, um, you know, he had like an 80% approval rating, right? People were like so exhausted from Watergate. Totally. They so wanted some kind of optimism. I mean, a and, peanut farmer from Georgia, you know, you know, he was he was seen as this ethical. Right. And he was an yes. evangelical. Yeah, totally. Yeah, he, Billy, he Graham, had Billy Graham. Qualities. But all the while, you know, the. The forces of the right, especially Ronald Reagan, uh, began to were rebuilding, you know, um, their next iteration of their oh. party um, in the sidelines. And by the way, all of the things that were being built by Reagan and various kinds of um, right wing groups. Yeah, Joe Coors and the Heritage Foundation and Paul Weirich and all these people were marshalling on the sidelines. They were marshalling on the sidelines and everything that they built are have echoed to this day, right? I mean, I was really surprised to read, for instance, in Reaganland, and, and speaking of live pitches, we should have Rick Perlstein on the show, um, you know, that Reagan and a lot of these groups determined back then, uh, you know, Carter was saying, hey, let's make election day a national holiday so that everybody's off work and they can go vote. And the right was saying, no, no, no. If we let everybody vote, that's going to be very bad for us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, they and and Reagan actually made this argument that hey, um, if you don't work for it a little bit, what's the value of voting, right? Yeah. And you're kind of like, wait a second, you know, they wait. don't want to make it easier. <laughs> makes no sense. It makes no sense, and but of course, it made perfect sense uh, to the GOP, and um, and so as we all know, the rest is becomes history because the various factions that Reagan manages to tie together become the core of the, you know, of the GOP for the next 30, 40 years. So, um, totally. And, 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 you know, you see that I'd, Trump is so desperately trying to, you know, you see him freaking out that with early voting and mail-in voting and his voting has become, you know, ostensibly easier. He's freaking out because he knows, you know, that's not good for him. Yeah. So Gabe, you know, they, um, this is a lot to pay attention to from day to day. Don't you find yourself kind of like perpetually exhausted paying attention to this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I feel like it is, um, you know, four years or, you know, even more because I covered Trump's campaign um, starting in 2015 um, when I was then at New York Magazine. So, you know, this is coming up on six years of, of my life. And it's, um, it is, it is exhausting. And I think one of the challenges is that to your point earlier about, you know, child separation is, is to maintain the, the sort of the moral outrage of, of our times, you know, it's hard to sustain that and kind of be vigilant. And so, you know, on top of everything that's happening, when it is just, you know, morning till night, you know, scandal, chaos, and conflict. And that is, I think, part of Trump's strategy. And, you know, it seems like it's not, it's not working just because, you know, exhaustion has led to apathy amongst his, uh, you know, the voters, especially suburban women. But, uh, um, yeah, it is, it is exhausting. And I, um, I wonder what a Biden administration is going to mean for journalism. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, Trump says, oh, the media business is going to crash because, um, because, uh, you know, the attention economy will wither without him. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that 
is the case because, you know, the Trump story has been in many ways a, a personality story. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, the, the, the core issue of, of the Trump years is, you know, how is it this, you know, emotionally unstable and clearly unfit person is, is president and how much damage will he, will he do? And that is, you know, the core of what the Lincoln Project ads are all about is, mm-hmm. you know, George Conway's whole theory is that he's a malignant narcissist. Um, and with Biden, you know, once you return some normalcy to the White House, you know, it actually might free up um, the bandwidth, people's, you know, brain space to actually. Oh, I know, totally think agree. To think about real issues, climate change for one, um, you know, yeah. income inequality for another. I mean, there's just so many actual issues that, you know, Trump um, is able to brush aside through, you know, through his, you know, chaos mongering. And, you know, I think as a journalist, I look forward to actually being able to write, you know, less about the spectacle and more about the substance. Oh, my God, I agree so much. And I've talked about this in previous episodes. Emily Jane Fox and I have talked about it. I remember a time I've, I've actually spoken to writing students and journalism students over the last few years. And I say one of the things that has changed is there used to be a diversity of storylines in the world. You know, you could write about all kinds of things and people would read it, right? There would be an audience for it. And the complete uh, concentration of attention around Trump's news cycle, which if you look at at that, it's a very fascistic kind of um, mode that, the, that he's put this country in where everybody's paying attention to the one drama, right? Totally. It's, I mean, it's the media equivalent of just banners of Kim Jong-un on the, you know, on every wall, right? On every building in North Korea, right? Well, I mean, they say, you know, one of the marks of a authoritarian system is that everyone thinks about the leader at all times. Well, that's it. And that's what it's been like. And I, I do think, you know, if and I'm knocking on a piece of wood now, this ends, Um, there's going to be definitely a crash of Twitter, cable news, you know, all the things we're kind of doom scrolling nowadays, right? Everybody's going to be kind of, um, there's going to be ecstatic bliss probably for a period of time and global celebration, let's be honest. And then there's going to be a crash as everybody kind of comes off the sugar high. And then we're going to have to rebuild, you know, in the same way that Biden is going to have to rebuild uh, the government. Um, We as a society, we as journalists, we as whatever it is you do, are going to have to like go back to your life, right? Totally. And and what a relief that will be on some level. I mean- So not to throw cold water on your theory, but here's what I've been thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, please. So, you know, it's, you know, mid-November and Joe Biden has decidedly won the election. The court challenges are clearly not going to go anywhere. Trump's a loser, right? What happens, you know, when he leaves office? Does he continue to hold MAGA rallies? Is he a force in, Is you know, because to your point, maybe Trump doesn't go away. I mean, maybe he, you know, starts a TV, a, a news network. Maybe he takes over Rush Limbaugh's um, talk radio show. I mean, are we still going to have to be, you know, thinking? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that's going to be a circus on the edge of town. That's what that's going to be. And I think, um, I also think partly it's going to come out of, um, I think, you know, moments ago we were talking about, you know, what is the culpability of a Jeff Zucker or or other people in the, you know, of our whole society and having spent so much time paying attention to this guy, that there's going to be a kind of shame associated with him. First of all, among his own people, the fact that he is a loser, okay, an election loser is going to be a dent in his messianic, you know, powers, right? Right. You know, I've been thinking about it the way, you know, prior to Trump, you know, the main story I was covering was Roger Ailes and the rise of Fox news and and Ailes, you know, was a horrible person, but he was one of the savviest media practitioners um, of his generation. And his core insight was that, 
when people left Fox News, when celebrities, you know, anchors like Glenn Beck, uh, you know, defected and tried to create their own empire outside of Fox, Megyn Kelly is another, they completely implode because the, the power came from being on the platform of Fox News and having, you know, millions of right-wingers watching you at all times. Right. And I think Trump is going to find the analog to that is he's going to discover that the White House is the network. I mean, what gives mm-hmm. his MAGA rallies and his tweets power is the fact that they are coming from the platform of the presidency. And once That's he right. returns to being a New York blowhard, uh, to your point, I don't think he's going to have you know, really anything outside of, you know, you know, doing these, you know, um, Trump university like events where he cons his followers to pay him money to attend his rallies. Right. And that's like going to be a, you know, basically what will be left of the people who still want to follow him is going to be something like a freak show. And it already is kind of a freak show. And could you imagine (laughs) Trump you know, on a desert island with these people. I mean, that's the... Oh, uh, Michael he would Cohen hate is, them. <laughs> Michael Cohen has talked about this. Yeah. You know, it, the, the people that love Trump, you know, he despises them. They're everything that he can't stand. And it's, right. it's this kind of um, codependent, self-loathing, you know, relationship that is, again, I think when the history gets written just understanding how this guy built a coalition out of the people that he wouldn't be caught dead, you know, within 50 feet of in New York city. Right. And you have to wonder, uh, after he's lost again, knock on wood, the presidency, if, if in fact he does, um, whether or not, uh, those people come to discover that he'd hates them. Right, that he considers them suckers and losers, and whether they continue to, uh, you know, accept. Um, I don't think like they he, will. You know, because did he, you see in Erie, Pennsylvania? You know, as Obama pointed out, he was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Trump was early this week, and he's basically like, you know, things were going great until the pandemic. Do you think I'd be coming to Erie, Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was such a like frontal kind of, um, you know, put down. Of his own audience, I was shocking to me, and they think. Well, it's you funny. know, and that's why I find it. You know, it's um, you know, at the end of a face in the crowd is one of my favorite movies. It essentially predicts the rise of cable news. Um, right. You know, the uh, the title character, um, you know, his moment of revelation is he's caught on a hot mic. You know, yes. basically, lonesome. I know roses. the scene. And anyways, he's caught on a hot mic, you know, saying what boobs and rubes all of his followers are, and he can't stand them. And it leads to his instant public shaming, and he loses everything. And I think that's the Hollywood version. I think the reality is that for Trump supporters, a lot of what he gave them, if you have to look at what the alternative is. I mean, he made these people feel like they were um, the stars of their own show. And when he's gone, they're going to go back to their lives of, of living in rural and marginalized communities. And, you know, he might insult them, but I think for them, the Trump years, you know, that was the best show in town for them. What else were they going to get? Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't see him losing his support, you know, cause it is funny. A friend of Trump's told me the other day that, you know, when, and if he ultimately loses, he's going to blame his supporters more than he's going to blame the never Trumpers in the media. And wow. just, it's almost like he's going to have to blame the people who were closest to him for right. And he's doing this, as you point yeah. out. Oh, he's yeah. He's, he's hinted at it. Yeah. In his speeches, he's like, you know, you better come, you know, vote I'm for me. I'm never coming back to Iowa if you don't no, vote for me. I might leave the country. Well, that would be something. This is Inside the Hive. So, you know, the $64,000 question that nobody wants to talk about. Although there was a time story about it this week, and I noticed that nobody so, would, nobody, you know, that you feel like that um, that line you th- would would go up with inflation. You know, sixty four grand now in in twenty twenty is like not yeah. a crazy amount of money. It's like you feel like that has to get uh, amended so that it's the like the six point four million dollar question. Well, the six point four million dollar question now is the whispers are that Joe Biden wins in a landslide, that there could be a blue wave, a real blue wave here. And it's it's like, 
I know there's people listening right now that are like, don't even talk about it, right? People are so frightened to even mention it. And uh, there was the, the time store I was referring to was about that, about people are whispering about it in the background. Well, I was talking to Terry McAuliffe the other day. Yeah. And he was saying that, you know, and, and James Carville kind of hinted at this this morning on Morning Joe, that they're seeing a, a blue wave in all the early voting. Um, right. And they're seeing what happened in 2018 when, you know, Democratic turnout was just massively um, uh, more than it was in 2016. So, yeah, it is. I didn't. I think Democrats are so traumatized by right. the the 2016 reversal that they just don't even want to say it out loud. Right. I mean, the, and again, this goes back to what we've been discussing about this sort of national PTSD. That uh, you know, I think about it, and I I wonder if we could be talking about this the rest of our lives. Like sure. what what has happened <laughs> over these last four years? It was so. It's been so um, horrendous. Um, so. How are you staying sane, Gabe? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Or you're, you've got a dog? Yeah, so I uh, I'm a quarantine cliche. I took up sourdough baking, and I my family adopted a puppy in the depths of lockdown last mm. April. Good. Sense. So, um, and and I'm unfortunately not reading as much as I'd like because I have a three year old daughter that I'm chasing around. Completely understood. Trying to, you know, <laughs> keep her from ingesting something that would clearly choke or poison her. So yes. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm basically, you know, reading the news and calling Trump sources, and um, and then any time outside of that is probably devoted to my family. Well, you're basically calling people about the three-year-old in the White House while trying to run around and capture an actual three-year-old. You no, know, I was thinking this morning she had an epic meltdown on the way to nursery school, and it's it, it honestly, and this is not even just a joke. It's 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 literally the exact same emotional range as as Trump is. I mean, the, right. the complete disregard for anybody outside of her immediate uh, circle is um, is uh, it's amazing that this man is. 74 years old and has the the uh, emotional temperature of a three-year-old. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I have been uh, thinking so much about what has happened to us as a country, what we're going to end up learning from it. And, you know, one of the things that has happened is that every rock in America has been lifted, Right. We now know where all the fault lines are in this country. You know, every we've had the identity politics movements on the left. We've had an identity politics movement on the right. We've had, uh, you know, everybody has a voice in the social media. It's a, this cacophony. There are no shadows in America any longer, right? It used to be that the extremes were in the shadows, behind the closet. You didn't it hear it. It was from dog them. whistles, right? It was all the subtext. Now yeah, it's that, just text. Now it's just text. Everything's text now. And the, you know, uh, Emily Jane Fox and I have like running joke here. I, I'm the optimist, right, uh, of the hive. Um, she she tempers that with her um, intelligent uh, reality checks. But I do see that we now know what the raw materials of our nation are right now. You know, there are no secrets in America. It's all out in the open. And we can, I think... Um, you can only kind of rebuild when you know exactly what you're dealing with. You know, there's no, we can't, I don't think Joe Biden can come into the White House if indeed he wins and, and pretend that these other things don't exist anymore, that there aren't white supremacists in America, that there aren't these hot edges on the extremes, right? I do think a lot of those will cool down when Trump is gone. You know what I mean? I think there'll be less attention on the extremes. I'm not saying that like AOC won't have a seat at the table, but, uh, you know, and maybe the conversation's all going to be about the fighting, infighting on the left. That's what some people think. But I do think that there's an opportunity here for Biden to unify the country, knowing what he's dealing with, right? Just a you thought. Know, yeah, that's, I'm thinking about it as you're, as you're saying it. I mean, I, that's, that's true. And though I'm trying to remember back, it might have been in 2012 when Obama was running for re-election. And I think there was some sort of 
there was some comment I read at the time where that if he won re-election, you know, the fever would break because he wouldn't, you know, he, and I just feel like, you know, yes, everything's on the surface, but I think the story of American politics is that, you know, especially having a radical right wing in this country is that the fever doesn't break. And there may be something we are talking about. I mean, in 2010, could you and I imagine talking about Donald Trump as president? I mean, he was the punchline of Back to the Future, too. And they yeah. just imagined what it would be like if a casino mogul was president. And now, and now we have. So I just, I guess I'm with Emily on this one. My, my concern is that there, there will be another uh, vector in American life that we can't even see coming. But when it does, it will, it will become our, our, our then, our future nightmare. Well, <laughs> sorry to sorry you, to get down. You heard but. it here, folks. Uh, Gabe Sherman's promising future nightmares that they, they just don't go away. Well, it may be true. And as I was saying earlier about the Reaganland book, you can read all about the Jimmy Carter years and how lurking in the shadows was a whole new thing that was going to impact the country for the next 30, 40 years. Um, and I, uh, by the way, and you reminded me, um, our editor. Uh, a longstanding editor, John Homans, the late, great John Homans, who passed away this summer. I'll never forget um, around 2010, actually, uh, him saying, hey, we heard this rumor that um, that Donald Trump wants to buy the New York Times. Why don't you call him up and we'll yeah. we'll write. And I remember my feeling when he pitched that to me. I was like, why are we covering this? Yeah. Right? This is like this cheap page six, you know carnival barker story that it's not even real right and i remember i called him up we talked and he was talking ranting about the Soulsburgers who own the new york times and about how you know they stink and he could run it so much better and you know but it, now i look back and i realized that it was sort of these were the opening gambits of what he was going to lay down right totally. later on and uh later on i saw him in albany new york at a rally uh, this was like a few years later, and it was for like a um, Second Amendment rights rally. And everybody in the audience was in like camo, and they were motorcyclists, and they had a, they were sort of, you know, rough guys from the sticks who like guns. And I was like, what is, what is Trump doing here? Right? It was just the most bizarre thing. I totally. remember just being kind of like, huh? It doesn't make any sense. Well, you're right. Some version of that may be happening right in front of us, and we don't know what it is, right? I mean, I, I, I've started to you know, really think a lot about at least national politics, um, and especially the presidency, as you know, following uh, the trajectory of a sine wave. And it goes up and it goes down. And if you look at, um, you know, we had Bill Clinton, you know, the Ur baby boomer with his woolly appetites and bimbo eruptions. Mm-hmm. And then who did we have next? I mean, George W. Bush, you know, this, you know, evangelical born again teetotaler. And a lot of that was, you know, bullshit. He was a frat boy. But, you know, at least in terms of the way, you know, he was presented. And then, you know, you had out of the, the horrors of the Iraq war, you had the anti-war candidate Barack Obama. And then after America's first black president, you get, you know, the first America's most overtly racist president. So it's like, you know, we have this pendulum. We're on this, you know, seesaw up and down. And, you know, maybe you know, the, the good thing, I think, for all of us is that Biden is pretty, you know, even keeled. He's not on one or on end of the other end of the seesaw. So hopefully whatever the counter reaction is to Biden, it won't be, you know, as equally as polarizing. Right. Well, not to bring Hegel into this, right? But as long as we're having sort of like a big cosmic view, you know, dorm room stoner conversation here. I mean, I do think that it what you just described is kind of a uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis sort of situation, right? Totally. So maybe, perhaps Biden is the, thesis, is the synthesis. I mean, that's what we hope and dream, right? That after November 3rd, we can find the middle again. We can rebuild the middle, that there can, can be a center that whether it held or not, it didn't, but can it be remade? And so, um, Gabe Sherman, I love having you on. We got to do this more often, man. Thanks, Joe. Um, I, it gives me a break from, uh, from writing. And as any writer knows, a break from writing is, is, uh, a a magical thing. So thank you. Uh, Of course. And, uh, we'll, we'll have you back again. You never really leave because the show's called inside the hive, but you're, 
technically always inside the hive. Um, Stay tuned. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to have Emily Jane Fox back next week with um, uh, the harrowing conclusion of the pre-November 3rd Inside the Hive uh, that we've all been living in. Stay safe and be well. And ladies and gentlemen, that's our show this week. I'd like to thank our guest, who's really just our colleague, Gabe Sherman. And we'll be seeing Emily Jane Fox next week. Don't you worry. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or really anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And thank you also to the folks at Cadence 13 and our producer, Bob Tabador. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And we will see you next week. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. From P-